Welcome to our 149th podcast and the 119th as a City on a Hill Church. As Pastor Mike is in transition, for which we covered your prayers, I've chosen a message that you've not experienced before from our archives, one delivered nearly 12 years ago. Pastor Mike brings love one another, a message that never changes, and a message with great spiritual impact. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to John chapter 14, verse 6. And we're going to read actually John 14, 6, and then we're going to skip immediately to John 18. But if you want to go ahead and open to John 14, this is where we're going to spring from. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then quickly turn to John 18 and pick up with me in verse 33. Jesus earlier declared to his disciples, I am the truth. Here Jesus is standing before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18, 33 as the Jewish leaders brought him there, turned him over that they might uh, find him guilty and crucify him. Verse 33 of John 18. Pilate therefore entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you up to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews. But as it is said, my king, as I said, my kingdom is not of this realm. Verse 37, Pilate therefore said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly, That I am a king for this. I have been born and for this. I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Webster's defines truth as follows. Honesty. Conformity to fact or reality, veracity, or undisputed fact. Jesus here stands before Pilate, this man who ultimately has the authority to release him or to uh, take him and crucify him. And he begins to question him, basically examining him to try and find out if there's any justification at all in these accusations that have been made? Is there any uh, rational reason why they should put this man to death? And he begins to uh, entreat him and to ask him these questions about whether he's a king. And and Jesus uh, uh, answers him and asks him the question, uh, are you saying this of yourself? Do you really want to know or did someone else tell you this about me? And then Pilate begins to get a little short with him, saying, I didn't deliver you up. They brought you to me. And then Jesus tells him, my kingdom is not of this world. 
So you are a king, Pilate says. Jesus speaks of a kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. So the assumption he deduces from this statement, then you're saying you're a king. Jesus didn't answer him initially. So you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king or you said it. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus begins to speak of truth as though it is a tangible thing which exists. Truth by its very nature, if it exists, can be found. It can be found out. If truth exists, then it can be found. Even if God exists, then he can be known. Pilate, who was coming in at the end of the golden age of the Greek philosophers, he was probably trained in Educated in the, in the Roman colleges. And certainly he would have studied these, uh, wise sages of the time. Socrates, and then, and then Plato, and then Aristotle. Aristotle who went and tutored and educated Alexander the Great. Plato, who wrote that work called The Republic, which still stands in philosophy classes in college today, is one of the greatest philosophical writings of all time, Plato's Republic, where Plato builds this world. He creates this city or this country with all of these philosophical laws built into it. And it was to create a utopia for mankind, the Republic. Alexander the Great took a lot of this and he went on and he conquered the known world. Alexander the Great, by the time he was 33, had conquered every country he knew of. Matter of fact, it's told that when he conquered the last country in the known world, he sat down in the street and he wept because there was no one else to conquer. There was the age of enlightenment, the the ancient age of enlightenment with this philosophy and and all of this uh, wisdom, so-called wisdom from these great thinkers. And there was a uh, perhaps a short season of of uh, trying to put this into play in the Greek Empire. But so quickly it unraveled. The Romans came along and, of course, the Romans uh, conquered the Greeks and All roads at that point led to Rome because Rome just kept conquering and conquering and conquering, went even further than the Greeks did in their conquest. And yet they held on to these teachings, this truth that these philosophers contrived with all of their thinking. And ultimately, their thinking still influences us today. It was Socrates that really came up with the idea of secular humanism which is the main uh, belief system, certainly of uh, higher learning of the educational uh, uh, colleges in this country here and in Western Europe. And, of course, secular humanism uh, would be, you know, all truth is truth. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. All roads lead to God. 
Whatever religion you believe is good for you. Whatever religion I believe is good for me. As long as no one hurts each other, as long as you're sincere in what you believe, then it's good and it's okay. The problem is, is that truth by its very nature is exclusive. Truth is not inclusive. Not everything can be true. There are things that are not true. And so this whole philosophy began to break down practically in the Greek Empire and then in the Roman Empire. And Pilate, who was coming on the end of this and the beginning of the, of the Roman Empire, here he has God's Son standing before him. Jesus, the Son of God. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, standing there before him. And he looks at him and Jesus speaks of this truth. I came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. He speaks definitely about this truth, definitively about this truth, truth that is real, truth that exists, truth that can be known. And Pilate looks at him scoffingly and says, what is truth? Been there, done that. We all know that none of that held up. None of those great philosophies held up in real life. There's no truth. And yet the truth was standing right in front of him. Jesus had said just a few chapters earlier to his disciples in the upper room, I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So, in the world's eyes, truth is relative. Truth is something that, you know, one could be, thing could be true for you, another true for me, another true for somebody else. Truth is inclusive. All things are true that you want to believe. In real life, practically speaking, it doesn't quite work that way. The 19th century author, Friedrich Nietzsche, was a German writer. Nietzsche believed that there was no God. As a matter of fact, Nietzsche is the one who coined the phrase, God is dead. And he wrote plays, satirical plays about a fool who was a madman who went around with a light that he had lighted a lamp and he went around crazily saying, where is God? Where is God? And all of these wise people were there laughing at him, mocking him and saying, I don't know what happened to God. Maybe he left. Maybe he got in a boat and sailed away. Maybe he's sleeping. Where is God? And the end of that satirical play was, God is dead. And you just haven't realized it yet. We buried him. We don't need God anymore was the idea. They needed God before because they were superstitious. Nietzsche believed that Christianity was a curse. Believed to have been influenced by a very uh, good friend of his who was a huge anti-Semite who believed he was a composer, who believed that Christianity was just a ploy that was created by the Jews. And so he hated it with a passion. And Nietzsche was one of the most prolific writers of that generation 
related to atheism. Before atheism, atheism was a popular thing. Today it is the norm of the educated elite in this country and in Western Europe. Ideas, though, thoughts have consequences. You can't keep your ideas to yourself. And when you share your ideas, people may act out what you've said. They may go out and they may live your ideas. Thoughts eventually lead to actions. That's why thoughts can be very, very dangerous if they're the wrong thoughts. That's why doctrine is so important. Be careful with your doctrine, Paul told Timothy. Because doctrine is important. What people believe determines how they will live. What you believe will determine how you live. What you believe will determine what sort of choices you make in life. Thoughts are the roots of ideas, which are the roots of actions. One of the most famous uh, examples of this, right there in Germany, of course, just a century later or so, was a young man named Adolf Hitler who picked up the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche and he swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And he believed, you know what, that's right. We can create our own utopia. We don't need God. God is a relic of the past. Man needed God to placate themselves. Man needed God to create something to, you know, maybe help themselves when a loved one died or to understand evil or things like that. But we've grown beyond that. And so it was his goal to create this utopian society, to take these thoughts of Frederick Nietzsche and to put them into practice. A social experiment, shall we call it as he went and he began to contrive new and uh, insightful ways of killing mass numbers of people. Because you know what? If there's no God, then there's no heaven. There's no rewards for good behavior. If there's no God, then there's no hell. There's no consequences for bad behavior. So it really doesn't matter how you live. At the same time that Nietzsche was writing, you had another Man, scientist, writer who came on the scene, Charles Darwin. And Charles Darwin provided the scientific reason why you don't have to believe in God because people had thought we were created for all of these centuries and millennia. And he came along and said, no, we weren't created. We've evolved. We came from the apes. Not only did we come from the apes, but at some point in ancient history, we crawled out of the slime. We were one time worms who became salamanders, and then lizards, and then birds, and then the dinosaurs evolved from the birds. Funny thought. And yet this provided the intellectual reasoning so that people didn't have to believe in a creator anymore. And if you follow that rational line of thinking, it will lead to moral and social chaos, not utopia. As Nietzsche predicted, when we throw off the chains and the shackles of Christianity and bury God, as he said, and move on and realize we're free to live the revolution of freedom. Life without consequences. Freedom of whatever you want to do. Whatever feels good to you, do it. 
Hitler believing that we evolved without a creator God, believing that he perhaps might be one of those superhuman men that Nietzsche wrote about. Nietzsche said on one end of of history is a worm, on the other end is Superman, and mankind is right in the middle walking on a tightrope. And Hitler took those thoughts and he put them into action and he began to create his third millennium or his third Reich. And part of it was to purify the race as he saw fit. And he took his anti-Semitic philosophies to unimaginable ends as he created the gas chambers and they took the Jews from all over Europe Eastern and Western Europe to these concentration camps where they were treated as less than animals. You could still go there today to Auschwitz and you could see the rooms that are full of human hair because they would shave these men and women and children before they would gas them because the hair had value to Hitler. They did scientific experiments with the children. They would castrate the boys. They would just go in and and treat the children. They would take twins and they would go and they would torture these children, these medical doctors who were brilliant from Germany. Germany at the time was the peak of intellectual ascent in the 1930s. Some of the smartest people, most educated people in the world are the ones who propagated one of the worst crimes in human history. Thoughts have consequences. Ideas end up changing the way you behave. Stalin, Joseph Stalin, the Russian tyrant, was another big fan of Nietzsche. Stalin, who killed 15 million of his own people, Russians. One of the worst tyrants in all of known human history. He first was influenced by Nietzsche's writing and said, said, yeah, this guy's got it right. This guy's got it right. There is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. And so I'm going to take and create my own utopia. And he did it. By the edge of the sword, anyone who would not yield to him, he killed and made an example of. And he was a ruthless, vile, hateful, perverted individual. His daughter in a BBC program who was there when Joseph Stalin died, at the end of his life, he was... uh, plagued with these uh, horrible hallucinations at the end of his life. And the last thing that she says he did when he was laying in his bed was he sat up in bed halfway, he clenched his fist and shook it at God, and then he dropped dead on his pillow. This one who hated God so much, who didn't believe God existed and yet he hated God. That's the funny thing. These atheists hate the Christian. They hate the God of Christianity. They hate what we stand for. We're holding back their progress. Really? Progress? Hitler is progress? 
Stalin is progress? Experiments gone wrong. Trying to do things without God. And Nietzsche himself, this prolific writer who to this day is a major influence in the thinking and the philosophy of our modern universities. At the end of his life, because he had freedom to go out and act sexually, apparently uh, he uh, contrived syphilis, which was untreatable at the time, and he began a, a slow uh, decline physically. Mentally, he began to fall apart, became deranged toward the end of his life, ended up on the streets, and was put into an insane asylum. And that's where he died. This one who wanted to be free from the thought of God, this one who had all of this intellectual ammunition as to why we came from monkeys and why we're not going to heaven or hell when we die and why it doesn't matter how you live, ended up dying because of the very things that he lived for. It killed him. Pilate says to Jesus, what is truth? Truth by its very nature is exclusive. If it's true, then it's exclusive and that means that other things are going to be false. Don't be apologetic to anyone that you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. You don't have to apologize for that. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. But I don't like that. Some people may say, well, tough. Don't argue with me. Argue with Jesus. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The implication is that if you don't believe in Him, you're not going to have everlasting life. You're going to perish. Some people are going to say, I don't like that concept. That's too exclusive. Well, tough. Take it up with God. Don't take it up with me. It's the truth. The interesting thing with truth is you can choose to believe it or not, but it doesn't change the fact that it's true. No matter what you believe or I believe, God is real. Whether or not you want to believe in Him, He's there. Regardless of whether or not you believe that you evolved from monkeys, the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to take God's word versus the words of these atheistic scientists. The Bible says that the body is merely a tent which will one day be folded up and put back in the ground. And within the body contains the immaterial, the eternal part, of your makeup, which is your soul or your spirit. And the Bible says that when your body dies, your soul, your spirit will go on to live forever. And you may say, well, I don't believe in life after death. Well, that's okay. You don't have to. But you're wrong. Because God says that there is life after death. And I'm going to believe what He says. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. You cannot have two truths that contradict each other. So when people say all roads lead to God, all religions are the same, you know, it's all the same light bulb with a different cover on top of it, shining a different way, 
different lampshade, and that's why we have all the different religions. It's all the same. You take your path, I take my path, as long as we both really believe sincerely, we're all going to end up in the same place. No, we're not. Because truths are non-contradictory, and religions contradict themselves. Hinduism cannot be true with its four million gods. If Christianity is true, with its one God revealed in three persons. One is true, one is false. They both cannot be true. Buddhism, which says that all is God. Pantheism, everything is God. You're God, I'm God. The tree's God. The rock is God. The bug is God. It's all evolving. Reincarnation continues to bring man up to his uh, evolved perfect state where he may become uh, through uh, meditation and and through uh, spiritual activity, channeling and so forth, that he might get in contact with the ascended masters who have already ascended into the greatest uh, evolution where you become a god. You see, that is it's contradictory to what the Bible says. The Bible says that there's one God revealed in three persons. There's not multiple gods. The tree is a created thing. The animal is a created thing. And a human being is a created thing, a created person. You're never going to be God. I'm never going to be God. Buddhism and Christianity are incompatible. What about Islam? Doesn't Islam believe in God? The moderate Muslims will tell you so. The moderate Muslims will tell you and me that they're a peace-loving people, a people who love peace and, you know, who want peace with other religions. That's not what their holy book says. The Quran says that you will take up the sword, even as Muhammad did, and you will destroy with the sword and you will conquer with the sword and all will bow to Allah, Allah, the moon God, who apparently appeared to Muhammad. There in 700 A.D. or so. It's a contradiction to Christianity. If you will not bend the knee to Allah, they'll take off your head. You will either yield to Allah willingly or you will yield to Allah forcibly, which is why you have people all over the Middle East and now all over the world going from village to village from country to country, conquering, murdering, raping, butchering in the name of Allah. Why? Because that's what they're commanded to do by their religion. That's a contradiction with Christianity. Jesus told Peter, put your sword away. Allah told Muhammad, take out your sword. Two different messages. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Muhammad is the man of war. Mohammed said, spill the bloods of the infidels who will not repent. Jesus said, I will go and spill my blood for the infidels and the unbelievers. They all can't be true, guys. No matter how much we don't want to argue with people. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. Truth can also be tested. Truth could be tested in three ways, and we're not going to take a lot of time on this, but truth could be tested in these three ways. Any truth. Is it logical? 
Is it provable? Can you can you actually live it or is it just in theory? Is it logical? Is it provable and is it relevant? And every false religion breaks down at some point when you give it the truth test. Christianity alone stands. Christianity is logical, it's intelligent. Christianity is provable because I know my life changed when I gave my life to Christ. I tried everything else. I even tried atheism. I tried taking off the shackles of religion and going and living for myself and pleasing myself. And it led me to suicide, the brink of suicide. I was so miserable. When I gave my life to Christ, Jesus came in and took up residence within me and He began to give me the power to live the life that I could never live before. He came and He began to show me how to live in the Spirit and how to crucify my flesh. He began to renew my mind instead of my lying being like an open sewer where everything and anything ran into it and I considered it. He came and He gave me the filter of His Word so I could test what is true and what is real and what is good from what is air and what is false. And anyone here today who is a born-again Christian knows the power that Jesus Christ has to change your life. He will change your life. He'll change your marriage. He'll change your family. He will change who you are. He'll come in and He'll take up residence within you. And He will begin to transform you from the inside out in a way like no other faith known to man can do practically. Christianity is an intelligent. Christianity is provable. It's proven by the people who practice it. And Christianity is relevant. It's not just theoretical. It's not just in theory. It's relevant to who you are. It's relevant to our society. It's relevant to our moral laws. It's relevant to what we think of our old people and what we think of our babies. It's relevant to our lives. And the more that we move away from the Christian foundation of the men and women who founded this country and wrote the Constitution and made our laws and our systems and our justice and our government, the more we are going to reap as a people the rotten fruit that comes from all of the other nations in the world who have rejected God and began to build upon a foundation that God was not a part of. Truth by its nature is non-contradictory. It will not contradict itself. What does God say in His Word about truth? Number one, in John 14:6, we see that truth is a person. Truth is not just a concept. It's not just philosophy and ideas. Truth is not even laws and belief system. Truth is a person. Jesus says, I am the truth. He is truth personified. In John chapter 1, verse 14 through 17, we read of Jesus. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Truth is a person. We also see Another application of truth in Second Timothy two five, Paul speaks to Timothy. Study to show thyself approved, he tells Timothy, a worker who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Jesus, when he prayed in that high priestly prayer right before he was betrayed and taken into custody in John seventeen seventeen. Jesus says, Father, sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Bible is the truth. You can believe it. And then in John chapter 14, another brief example here. Of truth in John 14, verse 16, Jesus speaking says, and I will ask of the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But, you know, him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Throughout the New Testament, there are many, many scriptures that speak of the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit is truth. It would make sense the word of God is truth because the Holy Spirit wrote the word of God. The neat thing is, is Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will teach us all things. The Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance, remembrance all that I have said to you. So not only is the Holy Spirit our teacher, but the Holy Spirit is the author. He authored the Bible and then he teaches us the Bible. Truth is knowable. Truth is wrapped up in and hidden from the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Freedom comes by the knowledge of truth. You could have worldly knowledge without end. Worldly wisdom without end. You couldn't read all the books that are written on these subjects in the libraries of these colleges. And if you spent your whole lifetime reading all of these profound thinkers and all of these profound authors, your life would not be changed. But if you just simply believe God at His Word, take Him at His Word, accept His Son for who He said He was, you will be transformed by the Son of God. And He will set you free. The things that keep you in bondage. 
The things that you cannot conquer in your life. The weaknesses in your flesh. The insecurities. The fear within your heart. You will never conquer these things through man's psychology. You will never conquer these things through medication. Ultimately, those are a band-aid. Jesus came to set you free. And he whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You'll be freed from the bondages of the things in this world. And briefly, as we wrap up here this morning, the truth of the Word of God is that we are all sinners. We're all sinners. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And sin is the problem of humankind. Not financial disparity. Not political differences. Not tyrants of history. Not medical challenges. Psychological problems. Sociological problems. Philosophical problems. The core problem with everything that is wrong in the world is related to sin. Sin is what destroys mankind. Sin is what destroys societies. Sin is what destroys families. Just look around. Look what happens when a man cheats on his wife. Look at the destruction that comes. But I'm free to do whatever I want. It's not adultery. It's just an affair. It's a fling. Everyone's doing it. Look at the president. Look at the presidential candidate, Jonathan Edwards. He was doing it. Look at the guy who was the governor of New York, Elliot Spitzer. He was doing it. What's wrong with it? It's okay. You want to do it? Go ahead and do it. You're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy your marriage. And you're going to destroy your family. Sin is the problem with our society. Nothing else. Everything has its roots there. Sin separates us from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they hid from God. Sin has put a barrier between God and man. God says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, I will make you white as snow. He says, my hand is not so short that I can't reach down and save you, but your sin has separated you from me. Sin is the problem. Man needs God. Man needs the true and living God. Man needs a relationship with God. And yet because of sin, man is separated from God. And apart from a Redeemer, apart from a Savior, man would be separated from God in this life and in the life to come for all eternity. Because sin is that serious to God. God cannot tolerate sin. God and sin can't be in the same place at the same time. That's why before Jesus came, when everyone died, they did not go to heaven. They went to Abraham's bosom. It was a separate compartment in the area called hell or Hades or Sheol where the dead went 
The rich man and Lazarus, Jesus tells us the story of the rich man who lived luxuriously and Lazarus, the poor beggar who sat at his gates and begged for bread, the crumbs from the table of the rich man. And it says that he had sores upon his body and the dogs came and licked his sores. And it says the rich man died and Lazarus died. Angels came and took Lazarus to a place of comfort, which Jesus called Abraham's bosom. And the rich man went to hell. And in hell, there was a place of fire and torment. And in those compartments, they could see each other. And the rich man called a cross. And he said, Father Abraham, could you send me some water? It's hot over here. And Abraham said, there's a great chasm fixed between you and I. I cannot go over to you. You cannot come over to me. He said, well, then can you go and tell my family about this place? I don't want anyone else to have to come here. And Abraham said to him. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They speak of this place. Sin separated even the righteous from God before Jesus came. But when Jesus came, he came for the purpose of dealing with sin once and for all. The root cause of mankind's problems, the root cause of war, the root cause of sexual perversion, the root cause of violence and hatred and racism. Jesus came to deal with these things. And he came to take the punishment, as it were, for your sin and for mine upon the cross. His ministry was a ministry and still is a ministry of reconciliation, reconciling sinful man with the holy God. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, I'll read this to you. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The good news of the gospel. Sin was dealt with by Jesus Christ. He came and he lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. He willingly went and he put himself in the place of judgment that he might take the punishment, that he might take the blows that mankind deserved from his heavenly father, who was holy and righteous and true. And a true God must always judge what is sin. And instead of you and me 
having to be punished for my sins and your sins before this holy and just God, which we deserve. Jesus took that punishment for us. Jesus went to the cross willingly. He laid down his life for the sheep. He didn't open his mouth as a lamb which is led before the shearers. He was bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. And Jesus hanging there on the cross, crying out to his father as he was receiving the punishment of the holy, eternal father God. God turned his back upon his son because, again, God and sin cannot be in the same place at the same time. And so when Jesus became sin for us, as we just read, he made him to become sin for us. God separated himself from his own son. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus died to reconcile God to man. Religion is man's attempt to reach up to God and it is an infinite chasm that separates us from God. Man could never reach God through all of his science and all of his philosophy and all of his ritualistic experiences, religious experiences, with all of his piety. Man could never be good enough for God. One sin, even the sin that you were born, is enough to keep you from heaven for all eternity. That's how serious God is about sin. But God made a very easy way, a very simple way, a way that even a child can understand. To be reconciled to God. He said, here's my son, listen to him. Here's my son in whom I am well pleased. He made him to become sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus took our sin, put it upon his son and punished him. Jesus, God took Jesus' righteousness, his perfection, his sinlessness, and he gave it to us. He imputed the righteousness of Christ upon every believer. So when God looks down upon me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees his son. How do you have that new life? How do you have that truth that will set you free? The Bible says it's very simple. He who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is as close as your mouth. Salvation is as close as your lips, if you would just simply call out upon the Lord with a believing heart, God has done the rest and you will be saved. We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you. 
as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church, Tehachapi, California.